2006, October 9th. Today is the first lecture of Unit 3 on the Revolution of the Heavenly Orbs, Lecture 13 on Greek Astronomy, which will begin in just a moment. Now, at the end of last week, we discussed the motions of the planets. It was the last of the bits of naked eye astronomy that we were doing. And we saw how, if you watch the motions of the stars rising in the east and setting in the west, you watch the sun rise in the east and set in the west every day, but do a slow eastward drift against the constellations through the, of the zodiac through the course of a year. As you watch the moon go through its phases in the course of a year, in the course of a month, you can actually trace out all these motions. In many ways, these motions are common sense. They're simple. They all move in the same way. They're highly predictable. You pretty much know from year to year, month to month, where the moon, the sun, and the stars are going to be as seen in your sky. And it really emphasizes that the common sense view you get of this is of you, the observer, standing on the surface of an unmoving Earth at the very center, and all these things are turning about you. And that common sense view is not denied by anything that you see in the sky if you look at the sun, moon, and stars. But if you look at the planets, the planets do not follow simple paths. They move generally towards the east against the background stars, but every now and then they stop, move backwards or retrograde toward, back towards the west, and then stop and turn back around again. For the superior planets, that happens around opposition. For the inferior planets, it happened near inferior conjunction. These motions defied simple poetic or metaphorical description. They even defy simple geometric description. They're just too complicated. But there they are in the sky demanding an explanation. So what we're going to begin today is a discussion of an effort that took somewhere around two to three millennia to work out, to solve the problem of why the planets appear to move the way they are. And at the end of this exploration, which largely begins about the year 1000 BC, and will effectively end with Isaac Newton at the, beginning of the, at the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th centuries, is not just the solution of a long-standing astronomical problem. It's actually going to show us the birth of the modern world. But that's kind of getting ahead of the story. Today I want to start at the beginning with an introduction to Greek astronomy and how they started coming to grip with that problem. The key ideas today is I want to introduce early geocentric systems, this common sense view that we're standing fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. There's two particular systems that I want to bring about. The first was due to an Aximander, and the other is a series of, of systems due to a group of people that we've already heard of. Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle, and of course, one of the, a new person, Eudoxus, one of the Plato, students of Plato. It was these people who together brought up the geocentric system from a very simple concept into a much more detailed mathematical description to try to give it predictive power. There's then a brief interlude where a man by the name of Aristarchus of Samos um, introduced a heliocentric system. We'll say a little bit about that, but it didn't really catch on, and it led to a much more complicated series of discussions of what was called an epicyclic geocentric system, first invented by Hipparchus of Nicaea, and then brought to its final form by Claudius Ptolemy, who we've already met. And it was Ptolemy's system that was to prevail for nearly 14 centuries following until the time of Copernicus. 
So today we're going to look at the roots of modern astronomy. Not because so much because it's an interesting historical story, but lying in this story are a lot of the rationales and observations that went into the refinements of these models. And these became a way of explaining phenomena that had to be addressed over time. And it sets the stage for the understanding of why the rise of the heliocentric system came about as it did in the 16th century and why there was so much opposition to it along a lot of lines. Now let's take a look again very quickly at a summary of what the celestial motions are. The fixed stars, and indeed the stars, appear to be fixed on the celestial sphere on a human time scale. They have very simple, uniform daily motions about the celestial poles. They rise and they set and they, in the, in the, every day, and they follow paths that are parallel to the celestial equator. The sun has also daily motion around the celestial poles. It rises in the east and sets in the west. But over the course of the day, and then strung out through the course of the year, there is a slow eastward motion along the ecliptic. Furthermore, there's a couple of details that I haven't mentioned before. One of those is that if you watch very carefully, the sun, in fact, moves a little faster towards the east in the wintertime, and a little bit slowly in the summertime. You can actually sense the difference in speed of the sun across the sky with respect to the background stars. The Greeks and the Babylonians certainly knew that, and it requires explanation. The moon. Again, if you walk outside this morning, those of you coming in this morning saw the beautiful waning gibbous moon. It shows a daily motion around the celestial poles. It rises in the east and sets in the west. But it moves much more rapidly along its motion, along its orbit, its eastward motion near the ecliptic over the course of a month. And it moves against the background stars through the course of a month. It also goes through a pattern of phases, this complicated multidimensional dance of the sun, earth, and moon around each other on the sky. All of these motions share the same sense of direction, rising in the east and setting in the west, and then compounded with a small eastward motion relative to the stars, along the ecliptic for the sun, along the five-degree tilted orbit for the moon. But the planets are much more complicated and require many more words to describe. Now, they, too, rise in the east and set in the west every day. They show this daily motion with respect to the celestial poles. And they generally tend to move eastward, Near, the, near but not in the ecliptic plane. But every now and then, they stop and move westward, especially at times of opposition for the superior planets and inferior conjunction for the inferior planets, Mercury and Venus. In detail, a piece that I didn't give you is, of course, the planets all move at different speeds. Mercury being the fastest to go around the sky, taking about 88 days to complete a cycle through the stars, whereas Saturn takes 30 to 40 years to make its motion. There's an additional piece of information that's notable. When the superior planets are near opposition, they're much brighter than they are at any other time of the year. And as they move further and further away towards the sun, as they move into the configuration called conjunction, they get fainter and fainter. They actually are not noticeably bright. So if you watched Mars at opposition or Jupiter and Saturn at opposition, they'd be very bright in the sky, but any time of year, they fade out and they get fainter. That's also an important clue as to what is going on. Now, any successful way of describing the motions in the solar system has to explain all of these observed facts. You can't just do one or two and ignore the rest. You've got to deal with the fact the speeds are different at different times of the year and sometimes even go retrograde. You've got to deal with the fact that there are different brightnesses at different, different configurations of the planets. You've got to deal with the fact that the sun and the moon move at non-uniform speeds across the sky. The sun, for example, a little bit faster in the winter, a little bit slower in the summer. 
We've got to explain these phenomena. Now, the first of these systems that we really begin to encounter arises in sort of the 7th to 6th centuries BC, and it comes from a man by the name of Anaximander. Anaximander was the first Greek philosopher, at least known to us, to actually suggest a geocentric system. This, again, is the common sense experience of the sky. You feel yourself standing fixed and unmoving upon the surface of the earth. The sky is stretched out like a hemispherical bowl above you in which the stars are affixed to a celestial sphere and you feel yourself to be the center of that. We are not sensible of the Earth's rotation or of the Earth's orbital motion. You simply cannot feel it for a variety of reasons that will become clear later in the course. Now to Anaximander, he lived in a place called Miletus, was that the Earth was flat. It was a cylinder and it was fixed and unmoving at the center. He did not have the idea of a spherical Earth yet. Anaximander was a very influential um, philosopher because he then took this idea and said, well, the sun, moon, and stars were affixed to rotating crystalline spheres that were centered upon the earth. So now he's got something a little different. He didn't see the, the sun, moon, and stars as simply painted on the celestial sphere, as light sort of shining through from heaven, if you will, behind the sphere, but in fact saw them as physical objects living in space. This is actually a real big departure from the previous view that's more of more metaphorical of, of where the heavens are. The impression, again, is that of these objects pasted upon a celestial sphere. What Anaximander did was he suddenly gave space depth. And he said that the sun, moon, and stars were actually physical objects. Whether they were like the Earth or not was hard to say. He thought perhaps they were composed of fire because, in fact, they were sources of light, as far as he could tell. Now, this idea is very, very influential for a lot of what comes on further, and it's very important departure. The idea that they're physical objects means that they are then subject to a physical explanation for their motions. One doesn't simply have to use myth and metaphor. One is actually giving a physical explanation, much in the same way that one might physically describe what happens if you pick up a rock and throw it across the room. The next person to come along we've already met is Pythagoras. He lived in the middle of the 5th century BC. He was a philosopher and mathematician. He was the founder of the Pythagorean school. And he was the person we met when we talk about the shape of the earth because he was the person who suggested that the earth must be a sphere largely on aesthetic grounds, on the feeling that spheres are perfect geometric shapes. And his idea of spheres as a perfect shape is important because he brought a number of new features to the geocentric thinking of Anaximander from the previous century. The first was that he made the earth not flat, but a spherical earth in which we are standing upon the center, standing upon the surface. The center of the universe is the center of the sphere that is also the center of the earth. He then placed the planets and the stars, affixed them to concentric spherical, concentric spheres made of crystal. And the reason he made them of crystal was so they were transparent. You weren't sensible of the structure that was suspending these objects in the sky. Then he added a little bit of a detail that Anaximander did not go into. He said that given that the sphere is the perfect shape and therefore the natural shape for any structure in the heavens, furthermore, the proportions of the sizes of those spheres must also reflect an underlying symmetry. And the symmetry that he saw was not so much a symmetry, but a harmony. And he said that the sizes of the spheres were ratios of small numbers, two to one, three to two, and so forth. These were not accidental choices. These are the same whole number ratios that you get in primary, 
first overtone, second overtone harmonics when you pluck a stringed instrument. And in fact, the Pythagoreans, in addition to being mathematicians and geometers, also were music theorists. They talked about ideal scales and things like that. And Pythagoras took this once, or at least his followers took it one step further, and said that not only were these harmonic ratios, as they called them, present in the sizes of the spheres, but that the spheres rubbing against each other produced itself a celestial harmony, the sort of music of the spheres that if you were sufficiently well-attuned philosophically, you could hear. That kind of strikes us as kind of an odd, new-agey kind of thing, a little flaky and hippy-dippy there. But it's actually, there are two very influential ideas coming in here. The first or actually, sorry, three, no, two, two influential ideas. We've already met the spherical Earth in terms of perfect geometry, but it's the idea that the sizes could be expressed in mathematical ratios. In other words, Pythagoras is now applying mathematics to the description of the motions in the heavens. And he's associating it with this idea of a harmony of the spheres. There is a natural underlying order, a harmony to the universe, and that that harmony can be described mathematically. In this case, in terms of the mathematics of whole number ratios, which he understood as being behind the mathematical harmonies of simple musical scales. But nonetheless, beginning the idea that the universe, taking Anaximander's idea that the universe is composed of physical objects, and now Pythagoras is saying, and they are describable in geometric and mathematical terms. It's a very important idea, which is essential to the beginnings of science. Plato comes into play a little bit, but really who's important is Plato's student, Eudoxus. We know very little about him. We know he was born around 408 BC, but little after that. Very few of his works survive. We only have descriptions of them for the most part. We know that he took this idea of geocentric crystalline spheres and elaborated upon them, but now he brought into it not the Pythagorean ideas, but the Platonic ideals of perfection. We've already met one of the platonic ideals. The perfect platonic form is the sphere, and that was the, the basis upon which Plato argued for the Earth being a sphere. But there was another platonic ideal, and that was the idea of uniform circular motion, that the motion in the heavens should basically be along a circular path at an exactly constant speed along the circumference of that circle. Uniform circular motion. So uniform means at a constant speed, neither, neither accelerating nor decelerating. And circular, well, just what it says, along a circular path. He used this then to elaborate a geocentric system based on uniform circular motion with objects affixed to spheres. But here he ran into a problem. He could not simply have one sphere for the sun, one sphere for the stars, one sphere for all the planets, because they noticed that the speeds were not uniform. They weren't always moving at the same angular speed across the sky. The sun sped up and slowed down a little bit, for example, from winter to summer. The planets certainly changed speed from a uniform speed across the sky, suddenly slowing down, backing up to retrograde, and then slowing down and speeding up again back to its normal motion. So you have to take and build these motions, not as single smooth motions, but as combinations of uniform circular motions, like gears meshing together in a machine, although in this case not gears, but crystalline spheres. Eudoxus' system eventually had to incorporate 27 interlocking, mutually uniformly rotating spheres. 
The first one was simple. The sphere of the fixed stars was as simple as it gets. The stars simply rise in the east and set in the west every day at a same uniform rate day after day, year after year to their ability to measure. But the sun and the moon, while they also have relatively simple motions, they rise in the east and set in the west, there's also the slow eastward drift along the ecliptic for the sun, faster in the winter, slower in the summer, and so he had to make a compound of three spheres to explain the motion of the sun, and similarly the moon moves faster when the moon is closest to us, moves slower when the moon is furthest away, and so a compound of three spheres was required, and to get that little dance of moving towards the east, stopping, backing up and going retrograde to the west, stopping and then moving back on its way that the planets did, each of the pl five visible planets required four spheres all interlocking together. The spheres within spheres combined with perfect uniform circular motion. The rotation rate of each individual sphere was a constant speed. It wasn't speeding up and slowing down. And so the effect of changing speeds was just simply how the different rates of the different nested spheres nested together. Complicated. Here's a little bit of a sketch of what part of this looks like. It's obviously very hard to draw everything. In the view, the Earth is a sphere with the Earth at the center of the universe. The outermost sphere is the celestial sphere to which are affixed the stars, and it simply rotates around the north celestial pole once every 24 hours at a uniform rate, giving us the rising and setting of the stars. The ecliptic sphere carries the sun. So I'm going to leave out the other two that give you the variable rates just for clarity. The primary motion of the sun is this motion about the ecliptic, and it's from west to east, so you can see by the way I've sketched it, it turns in the opposite direction. But its poles are affixed to this outermost crystalline sphere. So as that celestial sphere turns once around every 24 hours, embedded within that is this slow-turning sphere that turns around once a year. That once a year gives the motion of the sun along the ecliptic. And not surprisingly, the axis of that ecliptic sphere is tilted with respect to the celestial equator by 23.5 degrees, the obliquity of the ecliptic. And so we've drawn this picture with the ecliptic exactly on the celestial sphere. Eudoxus said, no, we've actually got a little depth in the system. You need to draw the sphere of the ecliptic in, but we still get the 23.5 degrees nested within. Two other spheres were folded into this, which are much more complicated to draw, to take up the account of the fact that the sun moves slightly faster in the winter, slightly slower in the summer. A planetary sphere might, and I've shown only two of the four spheres required, would be nested on top of the ecliptic sphere. Why? Because the planets show this general eastward motion around or near the ecliptic plane. I've exaggerated the angles here for clarity. But they occasionally stopped and sped up and moved backwards and then moved along like that back and forth in much more complicated motions. So we needed to compound together four separate motions, some prograde, some retrograde, and use those to produce the complicated motions of the planets. This was a hugely complicated machinery. Now you can try to imagine four separate spheres for each planet, five of those nested. It gets to be pretty complicated to draw, but you get the idea. Now I've, I've not drawn things to scale or anything, but it gives you an idea of the, of the sheer complexity of it. But because the motions were uniform circular motions, you could relatively easily write it down mathematically. That's not to say that 
it was not it was trivial to do. It was actually a difficult by hand calculation, but you could do it. So that's the view of Eudoxus, of nested crystalline spheres, each of them in uniform circular motion. And then you contrive the angles, nesting, and speeds of each of those, and you tune them until you're just right to get exactly the motions of the planet you want. The system was further elaborated by Aristotle. Aristotle was a pupil of Plato. He was the tutor of Alexander the Great. And in his work on the heavens, he took the work of his fellow pupil Eudoxus, and he later greater brought it to a greater degree of refinement, eventually finding that in order to describe the motions of the heavens in the kind of detail that their observations allowed, he needed 55 crystalline spheres within spheres. I'm not even going to try to draw them. The basic idea is the same as what I just showed for Eudoxus. He just has to add complexity to get the numbers to come out right. Now, the other thing that Aristotle brought to this is he incorporated physical reasoning into the whys and wherefores of this. He wasn't content just simply like Plato and Eudoxus to declare the sphere is the most perfect geometric form, so it must be this way. He came up with physical reasons for why it should be that way. Not just simply aesthetics, but physics. The Earth was fixed and moving at the center because it was simply too big to move, including too big to rotate on its own. Again, it's a common sense view. If you pick up a small rock, it's easy to pick up that rock and throw it. But as you get to successively larger and larger rocks, it's harder to pick it up and get it into motion. It takes more force. It takes more effort to move something. Now imagine the biggest thing human beings ever experience, the Earth. It was so large, it was simply unimaginable to him that it could move. And there were other reasonings that went behind it, which aren't that important to us here today that led him to say the Earth must be fixed and unmoving because it is physically absurd for it to be able to move. It's too big to move. He couldn't imagine it. And that failure of the imagination is important because it's going to take hold for 2,000 years. The second piece, he said, was that all the spheres are also in uniform circular motion. Uniform circular motion is the easiest form of motion to imagine. It does not require forces to maintain. It simply moves around and coasts around. So again, physical reason, uniform motion is a natural motion. And anything that causes it to speed up or slow down requires an external intervention and therefore is unnatural. Now, we're not used to that way of thinking, but that's really what's behind it. And again, it's a very influential way of looking at this, which was to survive for a very long time. So what Aristotle finally came up with was to combine various perfect motions, 55 crystalline spheres, and when you put all that machinery in motion, you could explain the motion of the sun and moon across the sky, the motions of the stars, and even the complex retrograde motions of all the planets. It was tough to calculate with, but that was its beauty. You could calculate with it. And you could compare the predictions of where Mars should be at a particular time with where it actually was on the sky. And to do that, you could, as the observation technology got better and better, and again, it's all naked eye technology. It's all sort of sticks and angle measurements and things like that. You could then refine the system by tuning the speeds of these crystalline spheres to make the answer come out correctly, to preserve the appearances. And therein lies the basis of the Aristotelian system that was so influential for so long. The Aristotelian system makes certain basic assumptions that are essential to its operation. The first of these we've already mentioned. The Earth is a sphere fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. This is a required condition of the Aristotelian view. 
that the natural state of motion on Earth is rest. Again, a common sense point of view. I pick anything up and I set it into motion. It does complicated things, but eventually it comes to rest. And that common sense notion of all motion being unnatural, but rest being the most natural state, explains this idea of fixed and unmoving. The Earth must be the ultimate expression of the natural state of rest. So it's a physical argument. However, the heavens are different. They never stop. They're always in unceasing, uniform, circular motion. It may be a complex combination of perfect motions that give you the illusion of the planet stopping, but they never stop. It's just the momentary alignment of the different motions that gives you the sudden stopping, retrograde, and move west. So there's a natural state on the earth is rest, death, decay. In the heavens is a state of unceasing uniform circular motion, always in motion, always playing the mystical harmonies of the spheres. So there is a separation between what is below, the realm below the moon, is the place of rest, death, and decay, the earth. But the heavens are different, and different rules apply. It's a very important idea, which was going to be very, very difficult to dislodge. It took about 2,000 years. As a consequence, this whole idea that you could set the earth into motion, either rotating or moving, revolving around the sun, was utterly unnatural. It didn't make any sense. The rules for the earth were different than the rules for the heavens. It's a very influential idea, and as I said, it took 2,000 years to get this ultimately wrong idea out of people's head. But this is the assumption that goes in. If this is your assumption, it limits the kinds of questions you ask and the kinds of interpretations you make of the things you observe. So our assumptions are very important to this. Now, all of the models that I've shown you so far have one primary purpose in the mode. They want to preserve appearances. They start from philosophical ideas, notions of what is perfection, rest in uniform circular motion, or spherical shapes. They then build the systems up to conform to those ideas. They build the system so they are consistent with those assumptions. And then various adjustments are then made because, of course, you should not know right out of the box what the exact right speeds are required or how many spheres you need. So you add and subtract spheres and you tweak their rates up and tune everything until you get an accurate prediction of planetary motion. Because the whole point is you want to be able to explain the motions and predict them, forecast them forwards. So it's required of you not simply to state the system philosophically, but to apply it to actual observations. Now, in this way of viewing things, you don't need to really explain the physical causes. Aristotle never attempted to say why the heavens were in motion. What is it that causes and sets them into motion and keeps them in motion? You're not required to answer that question to use the system to make predictions. All you have to do is preserve appearances. So the addition and subtraction of spheres, the changing of their rates, is simply an adjustment because human knowledge is imperfect and all you need to do is tune it up. This way of thinking that what's important is to preserve appearances so as to make proper predictions was immensely influential, has a profound later impact on the approach to how you explain planetary motions. So influential, again, like I said, it took about two millennia to sort of get rid of it. You had to actually break away from a whole way of thinking that had evolved. But that's not to say that every Greek agreed with the system. There were some, some, some radicals. 
We know of one of these who actually broke away from the geocentric system and proposed a heliocentric or sun-centered system as an alternative explanation. This heliocentric views have a number of common features. They put the sun and not the earth at the center. The earth then gets set into motion. It rotates around its axis once a day and it revolves or orbits around the sun once a year. The stars are still on a sphere, they're on the outermost of the celestial sphere, so far away that moving from one side of the, of the sun to the other, we are not sensible of changes in the distances to the stars. Just in the same way that an object seen in the distance, I am not sensible of its change in distance as I walk back and forth, because it's just too far away for our simple vision to handle. This has a number of attractions, not the least of which is that the complex non-uniform motions, the fact that the sun speeds up and slows down, the fact that these planets occasionally move retrograde, turn out not to require lots of nested spheres within spheres, they're an illusion. And they're an illusion of the fact that we are viewing the moving planets ourselves from a moving point of reference, the orbiting and rotating Earth. And so it actually offers a great deal of capsule complicity conceptual simplicity if you set the Earth into motion. Now, for example, the fact that the Mars tends to speed up, slow down, move backwards for a while makes no, is no mystery at all. Just like if you're driving down the freeway and you're driving faster than a, an accompanying car, that car appears to be moving backwards when you pass them. It's simply an illusion of the fact that you're moving faster than they are. So it offers a conceptual simplicity. The only known heliocentric system that survived to us from antiquity, unfortunately, is not known in detail. It comes to us from a man by the name of Aristarchus of Samos, who lived in the 3rd third, third century BC. There's actually a statue of him over here. His reasoning, why he was led to this, we think, is because he actually, among the works of his that did survive, are treatises on the distances of the sun and the moon and their relative sizes compared to the earth. He was able to show geometrically, and I'll demonstrate that here in a moment, how he did that, that the sun was 20 times further away than the moon. If that was true, the fact that the sun was 20 times further away from the moon, and yet the moon and the sun had the same angular size on the sky, because the sun and moon can eclipse each other, this means that the sun was five times bigger than the earth. This immediately leads to a contradiction. If you want to claim it's an absurdity that the Earth cannot move because it's too big, but you feel good with the fact that you've got an object five times bigger in motion, that's a philosophical contradiction that, it, that Aristarchus said, look, the sun is the biggest thing in the, in the solar system. Why not make it fixed and unmoving at the center and not the Earth? If you want the Earth to be absurd to be in motion, the sun is an even bigger absurdity in motion. And that, we think, is part of Aristarchus's reasoning. We don't know that from Aristarchus himself. We know it only from writers who came after him who condemned it, because all of Aristarchus's work on his heliocentric system have been lost to time. Here's how he measured the distance to the sun and moon. At the time of first quarter moon, if the sun is a finite distance away, the sun-earth-moon angle is not the exact 90 degrees I presented in the simple cartoon last week. It's slightly different. It's slightly oblique in that regard, but still a 90 degree angle up in the corner. At last quarter moon, we simply flip the configuration around. And notice, we have now not halved the circle of the moon. It takes the moon less time to traverse the distance 
between last quarter, new moon, and first quarter than it does for the moon to traverse the dis time distance between first quarter through full moon to last quarter. If you could measure this difference and take into account the much more complex motion of the moon, you could actually compute the distance to the sun. That's what was done. Unfortunately, it's very, very hard to judge when you are exactly at last quarter or first quarter phase with naked eye instruments. And so it's not surprising that, oops, that Aristarchus got the answer wrong by a whole bunch. But it was still big enough that it made the sun bigger than the Earth. And therefore, he proposed a detailed heliocentric system. Again, it was largely lost to us, although it's going to return because in the 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus is going to revive it when he attempts to refine and, re and build back the Aristotelian ideals back into the geocentric system that he had to work with. So it's not everyone bought into the geocentric viewpoint. There were people who thought otherwise, but their view never got any traction because the idea that the Earth was fixed and unmoving was literally an unmovable idea. It was hard for people to break out of that. And we know from the works that were condemning Aristarchus that that was exactly the line of arguments they used, that he was proposing an unnatural system. And so it only comes down to us in kind of distorted form, but we can see its outlines. Well, the system of crystalline spheres worked okay, but it had problems. It really didn't preserve appearances very well. And especially as the observing technology got better, the deficiencies of the Aristotelian spheres within spheres picture, a la Eudoxus, became manifest. It was failing to predict the proper motions of the planets. Hipparchus of Nicaea lived in the second century BC. He was the greatest astronomer of the classical period. He discovered, for example, the precession of the equinoxes, and he also developed the system of stellar magnitudes, our way of quantifying stellar brightnesses. He made a catalog containing nearly a thousand stars. Hipparchus was certainly by all means, by all measures, the greatest astronomer of antiquity. A lot of his data are of the very highest quality. He built instruments and was able to refine his observations to the highest degree possible for the technology of the time. So good were those instruments that he saw immediately the deficiencies of the Aristotelian crystalline spheres. So he took the spheres apart and he elaborated a new geometric description for the motions. He introduced an idea that he built on from a mathematician named Apollonius of Perga called the epicycle. Furthermore, he made a different a change, which was to have profound implications, but he could see it was required by his data, a real change from the past. Here is now data influencing the outline of the model. The Earth is no longer at the center. It's slightly off-center at an eccentric location. Not a lot, just a little bit but it's no longer at the dead geometric center. It's a real big change. Here's the picture. This shows the circle of the Earth. The center of the, of the circle motion is there. The Earth is here at the center. And instead of setting the circle, for example, of this planet exactly on the center of the Earth, we set the Earth a little off center at an eccentric location. But moving about that center in uniform circular motion is one guiding circle called a deferent. At that guiding point, we then center a second circle, a wheel on top of a wheel, which then links up to the planet, which turns along in this direction. Why did he use this? Well, notice they're both rotating in the same right-hand sense of rotation here in uniform circular motion. But the combination of this, this center of motion along the deferent moving in uniform circular motion and then the planet moving uniformly along its epicycle produces a loop-de-loop -loop path. 
So when the planet is up here, at the top part of its epicycle, it's moving generally towards the east. But when the two cross, it stops, moves westward, retrograde, and then stops and continues along its eastward path. So what we're seeing is a combination of wheels within wheels as they turn around me, every now and then produces this illusion of backwards motion. But it never stops. It's always moving at a constant speed. It's just how the two add together. What he's done is instead of making all the spheres exactly centered on the Earth, as Aristotle did, he not only moved the main sphere, the main circle, the deferent off-center, but he moved the second circle onto the rim of the deferent. He decentered the whole system. So he took apart the crystalline spheres and reassembled them into this nested gearwork of wheels within wheels. And this is the system of epicycles and deference. It was highly attractive because Hipparchus could use fewer circles to explain the motions that he saw. He didn't need 55 or more crystalline spheres having to have some go forward and some backwards. He could use a smaller number and they all moved in the same direction in uniform circular motion. All you had to do was tune the sizes and rotation rates, turning rates, to get the motions to come out right. And it's beautifully simpler, and it's a lot easier to deal with mathematically, and it had the advantage it gave much better predictions. It better preserved appearances. So the success is as follows. The combined motion reproduces the retrograde motion of the planets naturally without having to have some circles moving backwards and others moving forwards. Everybody moves in the same way in uniform circular motion. Furthermore, it explained the fact that the superior planets are closer and brighter at opposition than they are at when, mo when moving retrograde. So when the planets are retrograde and in opposition, they are closer to the Earth because the circle is swinging towards you at that time. It's closer to you and therefore brighter. A light source always looks brighter when it's closer to you. Furthermore, by placing the, the Earth at this eccentric position, introduces the apparent non-uniform motion of the Sun and Moon and the planets. It's because when the planet is further away from you, because you're off-center, even though it's moving at the same speed across the sky, because it's further away, the projection of that speed, the angle of that speed on the sky is slower, but when you're closer, it appears to be moving faster. Again, if you want an, an example of this, watch traffic on the road. The cars appear to be moving a lot faster when you're standing at the curb than when you're standing much further away. They're still moving at, you know, 55, 60 miles an hour, whatever they're driving down the road, but you're further away, so they appear to move less on your visual field. It's an illusion of depth. So that's what's giving the non-uniform motions. You fine-tune it by either adding epicycles or changing their rates. You nest wheels within wheels, and you simply put circles upon the rims of the subsequent circles, and you can build up the whole system. It's a beautiful system, geometrically. Simple to compute with, and it maintains this idea of uniform circular motion. And this system was then built on and elaborated by a number of people through antiquity. Hipparchus basically came at about the end of Greek civilization, the rise of the Roman Empire, took over the Greek lands, and eventually adopted most of the Greek learning into its own body of knowledge. This brings us now a fast forward nearly 400 years to Ta Claudius Ptolemy, uh, 300 years actually, who lived in the second century AD in Alexandria. We've already met Ptolemy. He was the greatest astronomer and geographer of the late classical age. He was responsible for the system of latitude and longitude and so forth. He wrote a book called The Mathematical Syntaxis, the synthesis of all mathematical knowledge at the time of the second century AD. It was absolutely complete as far as what he knew, and it 
it still survives to this day in an Arabic translation. The Arabs were so blown away by the, the thoroughness of this book, they called it the greatest compilation of knowledge in Arabic, Al-Majesti, and hence we now know it as the Al-Majest, because it came to us not through the Greeks, but through the Arabs. Ptolemy's contribution here was to elaborate the Hipparchan system and then add extra features to better refine the motions to better explain the heavens, to better preserve appearances, to get the predictions just right. Ptolemy was to do that by adding a structure called the equant. The equant accounts for the changes in the planet's speed as it moves around the Earth or the change in the sun's speed or the moon's speed. Simply setting the, the Earth off-center doesn't quite do it to enough, de- enough accuracy to explain what's seen. So the epistycle still moves around the center of the deferent, but instead of uniform circular motion, this idea which had been there for 700 years, he throws it out. It says it's not uniform circular motion, it's uniform angular motion. The swing of angle around 360 degrees is what's constant, but from an off-center position. And if you do that, then the motions come out right. That's a lot of words. Let's see in pictures what he's got. Here's the circle of the deferent. The center is here. The Earth is at an eccentric off-center position. We then move to an exactly opposite position from the center. So we take the position where the Earth is. We go to this empty position on the other side of center along the Earth-center line and define a position called the equant. And we quartered the sky. From the equant center, we put an epicycle up on the rim of the deferent and set it into motion. But now it's in motion so that it covers each of these quadrants in an equal time. It swings through an angle. But since this section of the quadrant down here at the bottom has a longer arc than those on the side of the circle with the equant, it must be moving faster here, slower here. Swinging through the same number of degrees per year, or degrees per day, whatever the rate is required, in angular motion, but changing its speed. So the Aristotelian platonic ideal of uniform circular motion is quietly removed and sent away and replaced by uniform angular speed. This is the full elaboration of the Ptolemaic system to explain the motions of the sun, moon, and five visible planets. The Earth is here off-center and the various circles of the moon, the sun, Mercury and Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn each on their off-center, eccentric, equant-driven circles. It's the ultimate geometric system. Ptolemy's final system was very complex. It had 40 epicycles in deference, equants and eccentrics for all the planets, and provided accurate predictions of the sun, moon, and stars. So accurate that it was to prevail as the description, geometrically, of the motions of the planets for 1,500 years. It survived from antiquity and emerged into the Middle Ages, as we'll see tomorrow.